They move in. They refuse to pay. And they just won't leave. Kids? (laughs) Well, kids too, but... (laughs) They are what has become known as serial squatters. And let me tell you, they are the definition of the worst roommates ever. Tonight, we talk about just one example, a man that tormented dozens of people up and down the East Coast in the 2000s, each of them allowing a renter to move in with them to help pay the bills to make life a little easier as they tried to carve their own spot in life. But instead... This model roommate they soon found out was like living with a psycho. Some of them for many, many years trapped. When he was finally evicted, he just moves on to the next victim over and over and over. Join us tonight as we look into This Worst Roommate Ever by the name of Jameson Bachman. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Now, I have to admit, I was ignorant of this man's story when you proposed the idea. But then when I got to reading it, putting my notes together, I was like, okay, it's a good story. Hell. <laughs> but yeah, this guy is a mess. And, and the way he treated people, the things he did, my goodness. But it's definitely an interesting story. Oh, very. Like, And I, I, I will uh, give credit and or blame to my wife, Sarah, and our daughter, Shannon. She loves this type of stuff. So she even refers, hey, dad, I just watched this and this would be a great podcast episode for you. So this is kind of one of those that evolved out of my family. It wasn't one I found myself. So in a weird flip here, I I dug into the history just a little bit of this story and how Bachman maybe became the worst roommate ever. Bill makes me so proud. I definitely have what could potentially be the first case of him actually doing this, which was sort of unintentional at the time, I believe. So, even one of Bachman's childhood friends once described him as the cockiest kid you ever met. He seemed to excel at everything he did. His parents thought he could do no wrong, according to an article in New York Magazine. Even Bachman's quote in his high school yearbook gave an indication of what was to come. Quote, fools say they learn by experience. I prefer to profit by others' experiences. Oof. So, even there. Now, he briefly attended Tulane University after high school. And in 1976, he witnessed a murder at a frat dinner, which he claimed changed him forever. Now, while eating dinner with his friend, Ken Gutzit, a Randall Vidrain suddenly entered and violently stabbed Gutzit. Now, apparently, Vidrain had worked as an assistant at the Tulane University Library, and he had already confronted Gutzit about eating food in the library at some point earlier. He asked him to leave. Gutzit refused. and Eventually, it escalated to the point where Vidrain called the police and they ordered him removed from the library. Now, Gutzit had returned a second time, again, eating in the library. You can imagine this would just infuriate Vidrine. So later that night, as he walked past the frat house, he once again got into a fight with Gutzit, and he would later return with a knife intent upon killing Gutzit. 
Vadrine violently stabbed Gazit in front of 25 witnesses, including Bachman. And, and although the incident was bad enough on its own, Bachman later exaggerated to people saying he had witnessed his friend being beheaded. Ooh. So. I can yeah. see where that would be a little traumatic. So Bachman would go on to earn his master's degree in history at Georgetown University. He was recognized as a remarkable student with extraordinary talents, with one professor is quoted as saying, in 20 years of university teaching, I have encountered very few people of his caliber. So apparently he, he excelled at everything he did. Now, after graduating, he spent several years overseas in Israel and the Netherlands, and then he would eventually return to the U.S., and he earned his law degree at the University of Miami at the age of 45. He puts that to good use. Yeah. Well, use. Good. <laughs> not True. So <laughs> okay. <laughs> Corrected. <laughs> he puts that to uh, elegant use yeah. for him. Now, he never did become a practicing attorney. He did fail the bar exam on his first attempt in 2003, and for some reason, he never tried again. So in 2005, he was hired to teach at the Thornton Donovan School, a private school in New Rochelle, where he was offered an apartment in a beautiful home near the campus by the headmaster. Now, later on, when he would talk about this time, Bachman would brag about how much he'd impressed the staff of the school. But, you know, in the spring, he was told his contract was not going to be renewed. When he heard this, he withheld his rent in protest and refused to move out. Eventually, after two months, the school managed to evict him. And I feel like possibly this may have been what started him down this path of being I this could see that this conning roommate he, he'd become known as kind of a nuisance in the philadelphia area he'd had several run-ins with the law and court officials already and he moved back and forth from new york to philly area no one really quite knows when he decided he was going to start manipulating and cutting people out of, out of rent money but really by 2006 he was definitely established and starting down that path so by 2006, like I say, he started to move down this path. That was the year he moved in with Arlene Herabedian. I believe that's what you pronounce it. Now, they had been casually dating, and he told her that he wouldn't need to stay with her for more than a couple months at that time. Two months then stretched out into four years, and in that entire time, Bachman had only paid a single month's rent. So then in, in 2010, Herabedian decided she was done with this. October of 2010, yeah, she is done. Uh, he had lived there for almost four years. Now, Arlene, in an interview, she looks back and she goes, now, unless you've went through this personally, you have no idea what this is like. I wish I would have had a crystal ball to look back and I would have stopped all of this. But it wasn't like that at all. He was well-mannered, kind at first. But after he moved in, it all went downhill from there very quickly. At one point, I was ready to just leave, but I knew he would not pay the rent, and I didn't want to screw over my landlord, Peter, so I stayed. Yet something had to give. It was unbearable. Early on, she started getting a cable bill sent to the address. She approached Jameson, who had set all of this up, for his online tutoring business that he did. Arlene said, look, I, I need you to start paying this stuff. You, you can start with this. You've not paid for anything since you moved in except for the first month's rent. And this, internet, this is all you. I don't have this. Jameson took the bill from her, looked her in the eye, ripped it up in front of her, and threw it on the floor. Arlene said, I just lost it. I started yelling at him, going off. You get back. Now, as Jameson approached her, trying to almost intimidate, staring her down face to face, he entered her personal space, as she described, and she admits, I slapped him on the face, and I told him, get back. At that point, he grabbed her around the neck and began to choke her, pushing her back against the wall and lifting her up by the throat. She fought back and kicked him as hard as she possibly could, knee to the groin, 
He let go and backed away. She fled the apartment. She then called 911, and apparently he also called 911. Here we have two cops that show up at the scene, one for each of them. Arlene said to her cop all the story and give give him all the details. He was nodding the entire time and tells her, go to family court tomorrow morning, file an order of protection against this man. Do this post haste. Now, she did this as the officer instructed, but learns Jameson had just beaten her there and actually filed an order of protection against Arlene moments before. She was served with the papers. However, Jameson did not request her to leave the apartment. Still, they had an order of protection against each other, living within the same house where they were supposed to not be within a hundred yards of each other. Still, by legalities of the court, since Jameson had not requested her to leave and they both showed addresses at this place, she was the only one paying the bills this was allowed, since both were residents again at the same address. Now, this goes on for about six weeks. November approaches of 2010. Arlene goes to the landlord, Peter, and says, I need Jameson out. She convinced Peter, the landlord, to go to court with her and file an injunction against Jameson in which they did. However, it became evident Jameson must have overheard Arlene talking about this as she was finishing getting ready in the bathroom that morning, applying some makeup on. She was looking at herself in the mirror. She became a little startled when she looked up and saw Jameson's reflection in the mirror. He was standing behind her in the open doorway, just staring at her. He then smiled and abruptly left, slamming the door. Arlene left shortly thereafter to catch a very busy subway commute to work when her phone rings it was peter her landlord he informs her that there are several cops at the residence looking for her arlene quick to get in front of whatever this now was going on went directly to the police precinct where an officer came out and spoke with her he told her arlene we have to arrest you she says for what the officers well we've been informed you came at mr bachman this morning with a knife and threatened him She, of course, said, I I did no such thing. (laughs) Felony charges were brought against Arlene, and she was arrested and thrown into lockup with 10 other women that she shared a cell with that night. She spent the night there in the cell, and when morning finally came, she faced a judge in court. The judge stated she was not allowed to return to her home and that she was on probation for a year. Arlene said, I was mortified, which is exactly what he wanted. I swear, you just can't make this stuff up. She pleaded with the judge, but that is my apartment. I pay the rent. I pay all the bills. The judge said, sorry, Mr. Bachman filed the order of protection first, and therefore by law, I must rule in his favor. You cannot return to your apartment while he's living there. She says after she was released, she just walked around the city aimlessly, trying to collect her thoughts and figure out where she could go, where she could live and then remembered all of her stuff was still there. As nightfall approached, she found herself walking closer by her apartment, with the lights on and envisioning Jameson inside. There was a bus approaching, and she states, You know, at that point, I thought it might be easier if I just jumped out in front of the bus. He obviously had won, and I had nowhere to go. She remembers saying, I was just besides myself. I didn't know what to do. I was just so distraught. The only thing that saved her life that night was a thought, this man has my apartment, but more importantly, he has my cats. Arlene kept several cats. I'm sitting here making faces because I know what comes next. (laughs) 
two of which were sickly and required daily medicine. She had to go to court and get permission and an escort to return to her own home to get her personal belongings and to pick up her beloved cats. But that all took time, almost a week. When she arrived, she learned Jameson had taken two of her cats to a kill shelter. She then raced across town to the shelter. One cat was in such poor health without its medicine, it had to be put down. She rescued the second cat, also in poor health, but found out he actually kept her other two cats, the healthy ones, Abby and Emma. Arlene thought to herself, I have not only failed at life, but I've failed to take care of my cats, and which she was obviously very fond of. Now this evil man had her other two cats and was keeping them. She says he was a sociopath, Jameson. I wanted to kill him. Now, that Jameson had Arlene out of the way. He started taking action against Peter, the landlord, for trying to help her and aiding him to get evicted. He would leave the water running constantly, 24-7. This would cause a larger water bill for Peter, the landlord, and at this time Arlene was no longer paying rent. And Jameson, as you might guess, was also not paying rent. The landlord tried having the water shut off, but the police were called and told the landlord, Turn the water on, or we will arrest you. He knew all the laws, and he knew how to manipulate them. To add insult to injury, he would intentionally toss out dirty cat litter out the back window upstairs into Peter's personal yard. He also had a large wooden log he would carry across the floor upstairs into different rooms and drop it suddenly to disrupt Peter's other tenants who lived in apartments below him. He started filing housing complaints with the city against the landlord. And Peter states, I spent more time in court in those months than I have in my entire life. And it was all bogus. But yet I had to appear because if I didn't, I would be found guilty. This continued with over 50 complaints all logged. And for each and every one, Peter had to appear in court. But all were shot down as Peter was doing nothing wrong. Peter said it became very evident. Jameson was a brilliant psycho who honestly knew the laws just as good, if not better, than most lawyers, and it was really scary. Jameson went on to live there an entire year without paying rent or so much a single dime. Then finally, in February of 2012, he was evicted. Arlene returned to the apartment in which Peter had been communicating updates with her on. She found Jameson still had her two cats. He loaded them in front of her into a U-Haul, and she pleaded with him to return them, but he would not. He just got in and drove away. Arlene says, I never knew what happened to my cats, but that was just the way Jameson was. So between that time and 2017, Jameson hops from house to house, basically, usually pretending to be a polite lawyer who needed somewhere to stay for some reason, usually compelling reason, family hardship or lost his home or whatever. Uh, he would bring his cat and his dog with him and would usually write a check for the first month's rent and then never pay again. Now, he would come up with outrageous excuses why he shouldn't have to pay using legal terminology and, and manipulating the law to, you know, exploit the situation, whatever. You know, and he didn't seem to be doing this at any point for material gain. I mean, he really just seemed to just derive statistic glee out yeah, of it. sadistic personal gratification. So, in the spring of 2012, he moves in with Sonia Acevedo, which is a very familiar name. I think I knew a girl with a name very similar to that when I was younger. 
And she said the relationship started off well. He started off by giving her a $1,400 check for the rent. Uh, they would often eat breakfast together cordially. She felt they were becoming friends. As a matter of fact, she became so comfortable around him that she invited him to join her at Jacob Reese Park, where she often sunbathed topless. Oof, didn't come across that in my notes. He also comforted her when one of her cats died, telling her, I'm, I'm so, so sorry, with tears in his eyes. And so when trouble first started, she kind of dismissed it because everything had been so good up until that point. Now, Sonia had laid claim to this third floor, we're going to call it a condo, as they were being built, getting it off the ground for development. It was to be her forever home, her retirement home. But after a run-in with Jameson Bachman, she would lose her home and not even be able to afford to retire. Now, Sonia states, as Bill set the groundwork for, when he first approached, he, he gave me no clue as to who or what he would become. He was kind, considered, and just all around a likable guy. But all that changed when she served him with eviction papers, in which the real Jameson came out and threatened to take her home away. She says after that day, she remembers lying in bed at night, worrying and fretting, thinking, this man is going to take my home, and I firmly believed it. But then she thought, Sonia, for, forget about that. This man is literally laying in a bed just on the other side of your wall. She continues, I became paranoid, scared to be in my own home. I began to wonder, is, is this guy coming into my private bedroom when I'm at work? She decided to put the theory to a test. She placed an empty wine bottle in the floor behind the door. Sure enough, the first day after she goes to work and returns home that night, the wine bottle had been moved by opening the door, pushing it against the wall. She decided to approach Jameson, telling him she knew he went into her room, and he should not do that. Still trying to be polite, she went and knocked on the doorframe of his open door. Even though it was, like I said, open, she confronted him. He spun around from his computer chair facing and then abruptly stood up and approached her. He said, I could, she said, I could see rage in his eye. Oh, you think I'm coming in your room? She replied, yes, I know you were. He came closer to face her. She was about 5'2", and he was about 6'3" leaning down, staring at her, once again getting in that personal space. Well, then bring it on. She had taken self-defense classes and did a palm strike against the door facing and told him, you better back off, asshole. You're barking up the wrong tree. Well, then bring it on. She had taken self-defense classes. She decided he wasn't worth it. So she turned and walked away, which seemed to infuriate him. He could not engage her. Where are you going? She goes, I believe I'm going to go to church and clear my mind. Jameson followed her all the way to the door, again trying to invoke her, trying to get her to do something. She finally turns and says, dude, you're not even worth the breath, and turned and walked out the door. As weeks continued, finally the eviction date was growing near, and Sonia was eager to take control of her home and her life once again. She just had to play it safe, be cautious, and wait. But then Hurricane Sandy hit before he was actually served. The evacuation order was given, and she left Jameson at the apartment. She went back to Brooklyn to stay with her mom during this time frame. Two weeks after the hurricane hit, she was finally allowed to return back and found Jameson was gone. There was nothing more for him there. He'd cleaned out his room and took all of his animals. She unfortunately was unable to recoup from the foreclosure and now is unable to ever think about affording something like that again. She did not know where Jameson went 
but she said, I could just not rest. So I decided to do an online search and I found that he had just moved on to terrorize another roommate for the next five years. So like Eric said, he continued to move on and terrorize others after that. Later that year, 2012, he moved in with a Melissa Frost, claiming to have lost his home due to Hurricane Sandy. Over the next few months, Jameson eventually took over the space. She said the effort he put into doing this was life-consuming, and that when things got bad between us, he stopped leaving the house because he thought I might change the locks. (laughs) Uh, One incident occurred when Melissa returned his microwave to his room. Since his belongings were not supposed to be kept in the common area of the apartment, she, she obviously took it back and brought it to him. He shouted at her that she had no right to touch his things and then used the microwave to push her back until she was standing on the very edge of the stair. Ooh. So, of course, this is very frightening behavior. She's very concerned. So she calls the police. When one of his cats disappeared, he wrote to her in all caps, You are the proximate cause of my cat's disappearance and presumed death. Do not communicate again with me unless it is through your attorney. No, I'm assuming that was via text message. Despite all this, she still tried to end their involvement peacefully. So, you know, she made the effort, even offering to return the money he had paid to her in November as rent and to help him find a new apartment. He, however, reacted with laughter, which left her in tears. He then tried to comfort her in his own way by saying, you've got your whole life in front of you. You're pretty and you're talented and you've got this house. Then he kind of smiled and said, well, you don't have this house anymore. This is my house. (laughs) So sadistic. Yeah, this incident made headlines in 2013 when it all came to a head finally. And the judge that oversaw the case even told Bachman, I find you to be totally incredible. I don't believe a word you say, and frankly, you're frightening. (laughs) He then ordered Bachman to leave Frost home and pay her over $1,300. Now, I have a lot of, a little, a few little blurbs here, different places. I'm sure she got her $1,300. Yeah, I'm sure she got it. Yeah. Uh, in the spring of 2015, he moved in with a Mark Gaynor, who was a f- the former oboist of the Charleston Symphony Orchestra. Apparently, while he lived with Mark, Jameson would walk around with a baseball bat slung over his shoulder in a sort of intimidating manner. Uh, in 2015, he faced off against realtor Jill Weatherford, a South Carolina realtor whose tenants had taken him in. He showed up at the courthouse in a sweat-drenched suit, having walked four miles to get there. And in court, he rattled off a list of names, falsely accusing Weatherford of being a slumlord. And at this point, she didn't know what was going on. She'd never met Bachman before in her life. (laughs) Who is this guy? In 2016, he moves in with Michael Oberhauser, a 31-year-old composer living in northwest D.C. Bachman moved in with him, and, and conflict happened almost immediately, which, strangely enough, occurred when Bachman kept taking the bath mat out of the bathroom and throwing it away. (laughs) <laughs> what um, when asked why he kept throwing it away bachman replied that he was he was just taking it to clean it but every time oberhauser would replace it bachman would throw it away again it got so bad that at one point oberhauser duct taped the mat to the floor and then left a handwritten note underneath it that just said why in capital letters <laughs> I, I mean it was he, he was just doing it to antagonize him yep in january 2017 he moved in with neville henry Henry said that Bachman had attacked him with a leg that he had broken off of a coffee table just one week after moving in. Bachman later left and attempted to sue Henry. And then after that, he just escalated even more until finally, finally, one woman decided to just really fight back and and tried to give it as good as she got. And that would be uh, Alexandria Miller, who went by Alex, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, kind of go up to May of 2017. 
Now, Alex is on interview and she states, sharing a room, this female victim, Alex, says, uh, he made me feel very uncomfortable and unsafe in my home within days after I invited him in. But there were times where he also did the right thing, too, apparently. And maybe that was to try to gain a certain amount of trust. Because I have here, there was at least one occasion where she had a date over and the guy refused to leave. And Bachman kind of stood up. You say he's a big guy. And he's like, buddy, I'm living here, too. She's asked you to go. I'm asking you to go. I'm going to ask you one more time. And then I'm going to take care of it myself. Got the protective aspect going on there. Yeah, yeah, probably to to, to use that, obviously, to his uh, more power. But at the time, Alex or Alexandria was working for a law firm. She had talked with her attorneys that she worked for and, and gave them some of the details. They responded and simply said, you are in deep trouble. They helped Alex, Alexandria Miller, form a legal letter to give to her roommate there in Philadelphia, Mr. Jameson Bachman. They warned her, get him out as soon as possible. You are in extreme danger, and this will only get worse the longer it goes on. Do you understand? To which she said, okay. On May 1st, 2017, she tried to get the landlord involved, but they did not want to be directly involved. As the apartment was first rented under Alex's name, who then, with their permission, subleased to Jameson Bachman. Now, he knew enough about the Philadelphia laws and the rights of rental that no one was going to make him leave, well, unless it was on his own accord. I also feel like we need to interject. I need to interject here. At the time, he was also posing as, as Jed Creek. He was using an alias at that moment. Uh, she didn't realize he was Bachman until sometime later. And again, you would have to assume, I mean, traveling up and down the yeah. the coast here, he's, he's a smart man to know yeah. that he needs to kind of go under some aliases during part of these because... Sure enough, I mean, it starts to catch up with him as as you would expect. Well, yeah, yeah. she eventually figures out who he is by, I think she just did an internet search and found some of the older stories. He was a serial squatter uh, who for years had terrorized roommates up and down the East Coast. And now here he was living with Alexandria in her home, the same house that uh, she worked for for years at the law firm to be able to afford and to start making a spot, a home for herself while still in her late 20s. So with the landlord not wanting to get involved and her lawyer employers telling her she was in trouble, she thought to herself, okay, how can I do this legally? I need to make my home a place where he did not want to be anymore, and I'll force him to surrender and move out. She goes, I already knew some of his dislikes. He hated smoking. He hated drinking. He hated rap music and any type of loud noise. So she takes these dislikes of his and devises a plan to come up with a party at her home. Now here, she would invite many of her friends over. And in a weird twist, she even decided she would serve the brand Jameson Whiskey to help usher out Jameson Bachman. And she laughed. When she posted the invite on Facebook, she even posted as a send-off for the serial squatter, Jameson Bachman. Yeah, it wasn't like a secret yeah. thing. It's like, hey, come over so, and help me yeah, get this done. Yeah, by this point, she had figured out who he was, had, knew his history. She knew what she was in for if she didn't get rid of him. Now, Alex invited somewhere between 20 to 30 friends over. It depends on kind of where your sources are. And again, all if, most, if not all of them, knowing the purpose was and what to play out and to be extreme. Now, Jameson was in his room that night. He had an online tutoring service that I had mentioned before, and the party was scheduled, ironically, to start right about the time he started his classes to take advantage of the situation just a wee bit more. 
People were playing loud rap music. They were drinking. They were laughing. They were smoking pot, all of which he could hear and smell from beneath the crack of his door. Some of her friends even knelt down to the floor and intentionally blew smoke beneath the door. They set the speakers up facing his door right outside and played Wu-Tang music, as Alex proclaimed. He was being bombarded on all levels of the senses, and they could tell it was starting to take a toll. They could hear in between the songs that he was pacing back and forth and even throwing stuff and yelling in between. Probably about 11 or 11.30, he decides to come out of the room to finally face everyone. The folks at the party all greeted him and said, Hey, there he is. He finally came out. Welcome to the party, Jameson. He may not have known everything that was going on until that moment, because as he looked around the apartment, he noticed signs had been made and copies of local newspapers who had done various stories on his horrible pasts and doings as being a serial squatter. Never before had Alex relayed this to him. She had researched him and found out that she was not the first, nor the second, nor third, or even fourth that he had done this to. The gig's up. It's time to get out, Jameson, she declared. The crowd began to confront him with chants similar. Alex then says, What's the matter, Jameson? Don't you want to come out and join the party? Jameson said, No, 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 and put on somewhat of a joker sinister grin as it was described. He returned back to his room, came back out moments later with his dog, and abruptly left the apartment. Before he storms out of the apartment with his with his dog and, and cat, he dumped the kitty litter into the toilet. I of had the not hole. come across that one. Okay. So that's obviously not okay. Yeah, that's uh, not okay. And and what I did, I had to. I found it a little amusing later on when he was confronted about this action. He would go on to state, "Correct me if I'm wrong, as I only have two graduate degrees, but my understanding was that the proper place for shit is in a toilet." <laughs> <laughs> say what you want about the guy he's uh he, he does have a way with words oh yes yes now after he has left with his pets at this time one of alex's friends took advantage of the situation grabbing a screwdriver and removed the door handle from jameson's bedroom door so jameson could not lock himself in the room any longer after a short period of time jameson and the dog returns to the apartment and he slams the bedroom door but it bounces back open and he realizes he can no longer latch nor lock it. He becomes very angry and Alex screamed, We will continue to party each and every night until you leave. But then finally, as midnight approached, Alex's mother, who was apparently there for this whole ordeal, said, Hun, it, it's getting late. Let's wrap this up for tonight. And so the party was declared to be over. That same morning, Alex found herself waking up extremely early at 4.30 a.m., so obviously only getting about four hours of sleep herself. She just really couldn't sleep. She was just so excited, and she felt she had successfully completed the mission. As she brushed her teeth in the shared bedroom, she noticed Jameson was also up very early for him. He came to the bathroom door and stood there looking at, again, her in the reflection of the mirror. Alex, while still brushing her teeth, smirked off, What's the matter? Jameson, couldn't you sleep? In which Jameson replied, You've made a grave mistake, you stupid girl, and entered the bathroom, grabbing her by the throat once again, we've seen this before, pinning her to the wall, shaking her over and over. 
then dropped her, turned around, and just walked out, returning to his room. Alex raged with anger, so she marches in after him into the room where the door obviously was open because he couldn't latch it or lock it. There she found Jameson feeding his cats with a knife in his hand. She stood there in the doorway with one foot in the room and demanded, What did you just say to me? Jameson calmly arose from the chair, walked across his bedroom, and attempted to slam the door. But Alex still had one leg inside. He slammed the door over and over, striking her leg at least ten times, and then stabbed her in the leg with that same knife that he yielded. When her mother arrived at the apartment, the police had already arrived, as she had called, and asking Alex what was going on and taking the statement. By this time, Alex had finished getting dressed, put on pants, and even tried to tend to her wounds at some point. The officer speaking to her noticed the red marks around her neck, and he asked if someone groped her there. She replied, yeah, and pointed, that man right there, Jameson. He said, has he done anything else to you? She said, well, I think I'm still bleeding, and pulled up her pant leg to show her leg, where she had multiple stab wounds, apparently by what looked like and sounded like a butter knife, not even a sharp pointy, but like a butter knife. The police immediately went to Jameson and put him in cuffs. The police recommended Alex file an order of protection against Jameson with an order of eviction due to the circumstances. A few hours later, Alex and her mother get updated that Jameson is in fact behind bars, locked up. A wave of relief succumbs her. Finally, after all this time, maybe she could live in peace, but it was short-lived. She realized quickly that there was no time to waste. She must pack all of his stuff up and get him out of the house. During this time, Alex found some very disturbing things in his room, which she all appropriately packed up. There were complex files with hundreds and hundreds of pages of legal documents involving various people through the years, how apparently he had done the same thing to other people way before her as she had already started to nick the top of the iceberg. She then found a plastic case, which she opened, discovering it was a case for a pistol. But the pistol was missing. Where was the gun? Alex's mother was concerned when Jameson got out of jail. Could he return to the apartment with the missing gun and maybe even try to kill her daughter? Within 24 hours, Alex receives a phone call from the district attorney to inform her Jameson has been bailed out by his older brother, Harry. Alex's mom and her friends were very concerned for her safety, begging Alex to leave the apartment, come stay with them, move out. But she said, no, I am not letting him beat me. This is my house. Due to all the issues caused by Jameson, she had no choice. And she did end up leaving her own house after all. But how dare this man come into my space and take it from me? A court date came up and Alex was told she had to return all of Jameson's personal belongings that she had packed up from the room in order to finalize everything. They agreed to meet at a mutual safe spot, the police station. She had brought everything that he had listed, except for his dog. His dog had been adopted while Jameson was in prison by an acquaintance of Alex. When Jameson learned of this, as he left the police station, he yelled out, You are a dead B-I-T-C-H. You got rid of my dog and squalled his tires and sped away. Alex and her mother returned into the police station 
where they filed a violation of Jameson's paperwork and protection order. However, on October 28, 2017, his brother, Harry, bailed him out yet again. This is when Jameson turns from a serial squatter to a murderer. Apparently, after his brother bails him out, Jameson asks to stay with his brother for a while, to which his brother's wife immediately says no, which she's obviously a smart woman. Yeah, everything she's heard at this point. On November 3rd, Harry texts his wife, hey, guess who just showed up as I drove in? And then he texts her back almost immediately. No, don't guess. After he sent this message, Jameson would go on to beat Harry to death to steal his credit card and then flee in his car. When Harry failed to meet his wife out on the town that evening as they had planned, she contacted police, and police found Harry's body at the bottom of his basement stairs. They immediately began searching for Bachman, and they found him in a hotel just seven miles away. Which he'd used his brother's credit card to pay for. Yeah, which he'd used his brother's card to pay for. He was taken back to jail to await trial for his brother's murder. Bachman would never make it to trial, however, as he would take his own life in his cell on December 8th, 2017. So in the end, Bachman managed to escape justice altogether. You know, the terrible things he had done to all these other people and then even his own brother's murder. So, And he wasn't going to give them closure. Again, you could consider Bachman went out on his own terms. Yeah. It wasn't going to be a jury or a court that made him do anything. Yeah, and I would say under the circumstances, he knew the jig was up as far as that was concerned. I mean, yeah, he, he was guilty, hands down. Yeah. Now, I do have one thing. Um, there was a Bob B. His last name was actually not ever stated. That was a high school friend of Jameson Bachman. He came forward trying to kind of, I guess, smooth things over to some degree. However, he never defended Bachman's actions. He just wanted to go on record and say, look, Jameson wasn't always like this. He had actually not seen his old friend for over a decade after high school. But after reminiscing through an old yearbook, he decided to try to look him up on Facebook. And lo and behold, he found Jameson, and he reached out to him. Jameson, he said, was not always this way. Uh, he's been an old school friend of mine for many years, and I, I know his family well. He goes, I will tell you, I think his issues started way after high school due to family stuff. His grandfather was Jameson's mentor, and Jameson looked up to him all through his childhood. But then after struggling in the decades after high school, His grandfather told him, my boy, you were the horse I bet on, and you really let me down. Instead, Jameson's older brother, Harry, seemed to kind of move up in the ranks as the well-favored of the boys. Landing a good-paying job, got married, got a home, really started making something of himself and his family. From that point on, the family's favor definitely seemed to go to Harry over Jameson, and he couldn't handle it. All that being said, I, I will say, in their limited continued Facebook messaging and texting communication, Jameson always had a story to tell, he says. At first, I just, you know, thought he was blowing off steam. But then over a period of years, I, I started seeing these patterns. Jameson was always the innocent victim. He talked about all these crazy women that would try to move in with him and how psycho they all were. And it became evident to even Bob from a thousand miles away He could see something had changed, and Jameson was quite the storyteller in the worst way. He remembers the time in 2017 when Jameson just seemed to vanish from texting and Facebook altogether. Then one day he just reappeared like nothing happened. Bob asked him, where have you been, buddy? Jameson replied, well, I've been in jail, and then immediately started ranting about his older brother, Harry. Jameson texted, stating, It's all over now. The case was worth about $10,000, which I desperately needed at the moment. He went on to complain about Harry. Of course, Harry 
had a very busy schedule being unemployed at the time, taking his sweet time to come bail me out. He's put one more nail in my coffin for sure. Now, Jameson went on to tell Bob, he goes, I was out of jail for five weeks with no real place to stay. I was literally homeless and with none of my animals. He still didn't give me a place to stay after many times of trying to contact him and begging him to give me a place, a room in his house. After all I'd been through, trying to be a good friend, Bob in turn reached out to Harry personally. And he told Harry, look, I'm, I'm really concerned about Jameson with the way he's been talking. Harry replied, look, Bob, don't worry about this. It's our family issue. Halloween night, October 31st, 2017, at 12.56 p.m., Bob would get what would be the last text from Jameson. It stated, I want to say goodbye, Robert. Thank you for your friendship, and thanks for looking me up. I wish it had been under better circumstances. Jameson had told him that Zach, his dog, had been stolen, and his cat, Abigail, had died. Based on the photo that uh, was shared on the interview that I watched, it was a calico cat and was the same one taking from Arlene Harbinger. So again, he had kept this woman's cat and claimed it as his own. Said literally the cat had died while holding it in his arms. Bob said with everything that had went on, I would be lying if I didn't wonder if he had something to do with the cat's death as he cradled it in its arms. Is it time for headlines, Eric? I believe it is time for headlines as we... I wanted to lighten it up a little bit with my headline. So this is taken from VancouverIsAwesome.com, January 30th, 2023. The article is entitled, The Cast Iron Pan's Name is Jacques. Funny Facebook ad seeks new roommate by Brendan Kurgan. <laughs> Alrighty. A couple seeking a roommate sought to make their ad stand out, and so they made it funny. Since their current roommate is being, quote, stolen away by romance, the duo is mourning her departure while seeking a new roommate. According to the ad, the place has everything that is needed to sustain life in this modern world, but if you have furniture that is better than what we have, brag on, we can definitely upgrade the place. The post makes note of random specific details, uh, including the functionality of the Panini Press, in which it says it works, <laughs> and the fact that the cast iron pan's name is Jacques. It's the only kitchenware that has been named. Uh, photos of the apartment have certain specifics highlighted, including knives in the kitchen, labeled as dangerous tools, the fact that they have a printer, and that there are some dead plants in the apartment. Dead plants. <laughs> you, have, you have an edge if you know how to take care of plants and if you introduce yourself with an interesting message. So just in case you're curious, I know this was from about a couple months ago, but at the time, the bedroom in this three-bedroom home was going for $760 a month. Go meet Jacques. Yeah, go meet Jacques, the pan. <laughs> the pan. Well, Bill attempted to, to make it lighter, so I'm going to turn and dim bring the back lights down. back down here a little bit. I'm going to actually rip a page out of tonight's story and present it in possibly even more of a dark, sinister way. I was listening to a totally unrelated, different fireman's account the other night and something that he is dealing with that is similar but a different darkness. No, I did not say a different light. This firefighter was coping with depression, guilt, and self-reflection. He had been off-duty, this was in California, and he was going out with his mother and father one evening for supper when he seen a horrific sight, a car that veered off the same bridge they were on and crashed into the murky waters below. Without hesitation, the brave firefighter, even though off-duty, pulled over, 
leapt from his car, leaving his mother and father there, and dove off the bridge into the water after the car and its driver. The water was swift, and this firefighter swam beneath the murky water. He found out that there was a father driving, and his two young sons, aged seven and ten, were in the back seat. He only had time to save two of the three. This is something that still haunts him to this day. He surfaced with the father and the first boy that he could grab to the surface to those that were there also trying to help. He dove back into the murky water and reached the last boy, but it was too late. He had drowned, and the current actually swept him away from the car as he tried to remove him out. The off-duty firefighter surfaced gasping for air, but made the official report. As if losing the life of a young boy just within your grasp wasn't enough, it was what he learned over the next couple days that took this to the darkest of levels. The driver, the father, who had actually strapped both of his boys in that evening, intentionally drove the car off the bridge to commit suicide and, in doing so, attempt to take the lives of his seven- and ten-year-old sons. He went on to say it haunted him for years. He was unable to report back to duty, taking responsibility for saving the father who was trying to kill his only two sons. But how could he have known? There was no way. There was no time to even reflect. You just react as you're trained and you do what you can and that's all you can do. He stated later that another firefighter came to speak to him and said, You know, what you did was nothing short of a miracle. You saved two people that night. For us firefighters, it's not us to judge those that we save. We don't have that luxury. And finally, after two years after the incident, the off-duty firefighter was able to return to his firehouse, where he continued to serve his community, and where he would go on to save many, many more lives. Now, putting that into perspective, you know, we have Jameson Bachman. Had he been put in that role and someone tried to have saved him, you know, imagine that. But this firefighter saved a father and a son, not knowing the history. And he said, had I known it, I hate to think about it, but obviously I would have let the father die and grabbed the two sons. But without the entire picture, the understanding of the story of why, you can't ever make that choice. And I'm not sure we would want to have the information to make that choice. So more to ponder and think upon. I hope that uh, we have enlightened you, possibly uh, cautioned you for anyone that is considering a roommate. Obviously, there are a lot more successful roommate stories than these tales, but we can't make this stuff up. This is about as twisted and psychotic as it could possibly get, where people just get their jollies off torturing people. Thanks for listening. Be safe out there. We went and saw the uh, Pope's Exorcist. That was it was pretty. Now, I've, I've seen like some uh, one of my wife's friends saw that, and she was like nine point five out of ten. Yeah, it, like it, it was said, it, it was, was good. It was good. Now I, I saw reviews that said it was terrible. Yeah, can't I, please everybody. I I think when you do nothing but review movies as a person, like as a professional movie, like okay, this we can put this in the outtakes later on. But I proposed to Sean the idea that him and I start a podcast, and I just wanted to call it Sean and his dad watch a movie. There you and go. we were gonna re- we were gonna review movies as like just two regular Joes watching movies, you know. Yeah. And you know we watch enough older movies and new movies. We probably watch like one movie a week, give or take. So it would have been easy, and we could even you know talk about TV shows and whatnot. Because him and I watch you know stuff all the time. 
but it was like I, I keep telling them like we should just do this and just put it out there and just like movie reviews for regular dudes you know yeah. like oh hey I went and saw the new Marvel movie you know people crap all over Marvel movies but it's like you know, I thought Quantumania was pretty good it's weird well, people like, crap on the DC movies oh well <laughs> oh, I don't know about you but I do kind of want to see The Flash just because of Michael Keaton but yes Ezra Miller yes. like I don't want to support that weirdo I, I was gonna say <laughs> yes I'm not on board with supporting him but, but yeah. uh, okay. Michael Keaton no. come on yeah. yeah no that classic Batman I, I even in the previews when he says I'm Batman I'm, I'm like Batman. oh yeah no that was reaching right back to my childhood <laughs> oh by the way I've noticed that you apparently watch things on uh, Netflix and then bring them in here yes <laughs> that is one of my sources actually i blame my wife for that she does that and my I daughter didn't, i didn't realize this was like a netflix show until i started reading the first yeah, article worst worst roommates ever yeah 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 that's just one so we could definitely no, his, do some other podcasts his story on though Ooh, man <clears throat> bachman would go on to earn his masteries to build up masteries good but after a run-in with jameson bach as bill set the stage bachman I even have Bachman. I can't read today. Well, no, I'm not doing much better. Claiming to have lost his home due to Sir, due to Hurricane Handy. Come on, <laughs> that's a nice Jeez. twist of words. Hurricane <laughs> Handy, folks. <clears throat> I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, (laughs) using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing. And thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. And I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.